Hello and welcome to the 2021 Managing IP Winners Podcast, where we'll be in conversation with winning firms from the recent America's Awards. I'm Patrick Wingrove, America's Editor at Managing IP, and I'll be your host for today. Our prestigious awards recognize remarkable achievements, innovation, and developments in IP law in the past year, which was, of course, disrupted and defined by COVID-19. In today's podcast, we will be discussing Apple v. Fintiv, trying a case through a pandemic. I'm delighted to be joined by counsel from US law firm Kazowitz, who are well known for their creative commercial litigation and willingness to take on tough cases. Jonathan Waldrop, the managing partner of the firm's Silicon Valley office, is with us. He represents industry-leading companies in patent and trademark litigation involving technologies. He has acted as lead trial counsel in many cases for his clients and has a history of achieving favorable jury verdicts. Welcome, John. Also joining us is Darcy Jones, a partner of Kazowitz's intellectual property group. Uh, Darcy has considerable lead counsel and trial experience in patent infringement litigation. She represents clients in diverse and complex matters in all phases of litigation in state and federal courts, from pre-filing investigation through post-trial briefing and appeal. Thank you for joining us today, Darcy. And our third guest is Marcus Barber, uh, also a partner Kazowitz's Silicon Valley office. Uh, Marcus's practice focuses on complex patent infringement cases involving a wide range of technologies, including software, pharmaceuticals, and telecommunications. He has experience in all phases of patent litigation, including fact and expert discovery, claim construction, motion practice, and trial. Great to have you with us today, Marcus. Right, so to kick off the session, firstly, many congratulations uh, for your winning the Impact Case of the Year at the recent MIP America's 2021 Awards. So, how did you bring the Apple v. Fintiv case at the PTAB to a successful conclusion for your client during the pandemic? Well, thank you. Thank you. We are very happy to have been recognized uh, in this way by the Managing IP America's Awards. Uh, we're very thankful for the recognition and uh, very happy to be talking to you today. Uh, for purposes of, of our conversation, I'm going to confine my comments just to the PTAB case. As you know, there's an underlying district court litigation ongoing and we won't be talking about but that, but we'll, we're happy to talk about the PTAB decision, which is over. Uh, I think there are three things that come to mind as to how we were able to accomplish this. One is there had been a re recent holding called NHK Spring, which had set forth a number of factors uh, that litigants before the PTAB could consider in terms of whether or not you could have a discretionary denial. And that was, so timing was important. So that's number one, timing and the PTAB elucidating or eliminating uh, what you could consider for purpose of discretionary denial. Two was we made a strategic decision given our backgrounds and how we approach cases to really focus on those factors. We had noticed that many litigants before the PTAB gave short shrift to the NHK Springs factors, focused more on the merits to the detriment of these factors that could lead to a discretionary denial, which is, of course, very important. It's the whole kind of ball game. So we made a strategic decision to focus on that in addition to the merits where a lot of litigants before the PTAB did not. So that was very, very important. And I think went to some things about our team that make us highly creative and very different in terms of how we approach cases. 
And then third, we were fortunate to be in a district and where the underlying district was that was run by an excellent judge who had a very quick schedule and who ran what we believe. And still, as you can see from how things have developed in the explosive and popularity popularity of his district in terms of how he runs his dockets. So those three things together work together to lead to what we thought was a great result for our client and for the firm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for that. And um, so, well, that moves us on very extremely nicely, obviously, to the next question, which is, um, so what are some of your key takeaways from your experience of um, virtual litigation and, uh, and managing litigation in a, in a socially distanced sort of way more generally over the past year, particularly when it comes to uh, the district courts. Um, Darcy, what do you think? One of the major takeaways that we had, uh, you know, we had to pra- we had to get ready for trial uh, in the middle of the pandemic and none of us had access to each other um, at all. Our office was closed. And if you had asked any one of us before the pandemic how we would have handled uh, everything in the pretrial phase without being able to see each other, uh, I think we, we all would have been pretty uh, concerned about trying to pull that off. Our team had already been extremely collaborative, but I think if we had been in the office, there would have been many more kind of spontaneous one-on-one types of meetings about different motions and about different witness outlines, et cetera, and all of the other pretrial tasks that you do. But we were um, extremely intentional about making sure that we had full team check-ins much more often because we were all remote. And that actually turned out to be to our benefit um, because with being able to have the full team collaboration, we were able to have a stronger, more cohesive um, set up uh, for, for the team and to be able to handle all of the various motions and, all, and the ways all of them interrelated with each other, such as Daubert motions, summary judgment motions, motions in limine. We were all able to collaborate much more in each other's witness outlines. And I think that made a really big difference being able to have the full team collaborate versus just kind of the smaller sub teams. Um, and that actually worked out well. With respect to the courtroom, uh, we had our trial was before Judge Albright in the Western District of Texas, and he pre-pandemic had already been having lots of discovery disputes. He handled those via the telephone, and that was very effective in an efficient way uh, to handle those. And that bled over into the notions of doing remote hearings. Um, he had had many remote hearings uh, with us when, when we were working up to trial, both to talk to us about logistics for the pandemic and how he was going to um, make sure that the courtroom was safe, which was extremely effective for us. And also um, had lots of remote hearings on all of the various motions that we had. And that worked out really well because your whole team is able to go and, and actually attend a remote hearing whereas you don't always have that benefit. So your whole team has access to the judge in a way that they didn't have before the pandemic. So those were some things that we thought were real benefits and talking with other lawyers and their experiences, we think that those are, those are things that will probably stay after the pandemic, the notion of having more remote hearings and remote depositions, things like that. Fantastic. That's fascinating. So absolutely, I mean, that could well be something that continues into the future. Um, Based on your experience over the past year, is there any, um, I suppose, is there a top uh, takeaway 
to take forward into the future? Anything that uh, you thought was particularly important? I think it was particularly important for us that we will make sure that we're always more intentional about having full team check-ins rather than just with the sub teams. Um, I think we just had a much stronger experience and, and we're able to make sure that everybody um, was weighing in on every different aspect of the case and makes, it makes for a much stronger case when everybody has, has equal access to each other. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you. And uh, well, of course, within that, you mentioned that one of the first trials was, or the trial last year was uh, with Alan Albright at the Western District of Texas. So, um, and of course, that's uh, an incredibly important topic at the moment, as I'm sure um, virtually anyone in litigation will tell you in the United States. Um, so um, I'll direct this question uh, to John. So what, what lessons did you learn from your seminal patent trial uh, in the Western District of Texas? Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, one, it was a tremendous experience to try a case in a pandemic before Judge Albright. It was the highlight of my professional career, uh, given the nature of the case, the nature of just the epicness of the circumstances, the, the epicness of the team. It was a tremendous uh, experience. What I took away from it was the value, probably three things and maybe four. First was the value of uh, what Darcy alluded to was having a solid, cohesive team. And she talked about that uh, and how that is even even more important in a pandemic. And I think going forward as we have more virtuality in our practice to the importance of knowing your jurisdiction and studying it uh, from uh, what your jury pool is going to be like, uh, what are the circumstances in which you're going to present the trial, understanding uh, what the court is focused on in terms of having a a fluid, safe, and efficient trial. Uh, and then third, what you realize too is, is the presentation of evidence is, is very, very important in terms of how you present your case and your witnesses and how fourth and last that we're in a very dynamic situation with the Western District of Texas in terms of it is very new, it is evolving. I think even as of today, there have been four jury trials at this point. And so people are still learning and it is, clearly a very important place and will become very, very important. And we're just very blessed to be part of that dynamic learning process. Each trial, each outcome, uh, you take data from and you evaluate uh, the jury pools, the decisions, both uh, ultimately in terms of the verdict, but also in terms of what the court's rulings are on evidence and admissibility and the like. So it is a dynamic, dynamic situation, and it behooves clients and law firms to keep their hands on the pulse of that jurisdiction as it evolves. With 20% of all patent cases is clearly a very important place and will be so for uh, probably the rest of my career. Absolutely. And as you alluded to just, just a moment ago, one of the important things from what I understand, of course, is the uh, oh, jury selection process. And that presents, again, from what I understand, new challenges and opportunities when it comes to the Western District of Texas. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This reason to the theme I had before, which was that it is new and evolving. Uh, the original kind of old players that are well known, such as the District of Delaware or the Northern District of California, of course, uh, the iconic Eastern District of Texas, uh, those are well-known places in terms of the jury pools, in terms of the dynamics, in terms of the particular attitudes towards patent litigation or plaintiffs or defendants. Uh, there's so much research and so much experience 
in those jurisdictions. Well, well, this is new. And and the Western District of Texas was a much more dynamic place. It, it is one of the largest jurisdictions in the country in terms of geographic reach. It has dynamic cities like San Antonio and Austin. It also has uh, tech companies there uh, that are growing and are, are and are doing very well. It has a huge tech community there, but it also has a lot of the features that you would see in other jurisdictions like the Eastern District of Texas. So it's a very diverse place, and that diversity of thought, that diversity of demographics, is presents a new challenge one that we welcome, but a new challenge for practitioners. And so it is dynamic, it's evolving. And so it behooves you that we are to change and to know the jurisdiction. So in the future, people will spend a lot more time trying to understand how these different jurisdictions and parts of the Western District interplay with each other. Indeed. And I'm glad that you mentioned the Eastern District of Texas, of course, because that's that's the other district that uh, the Western District is uh, constantly compared to for, for historic and geographical reasons. Um, so how does this process differ then when you're uh, trying a case in in the Western District versus uh, the Eastern District of Texas? It, it, it doesn't it doesn't differ. It, it just presents a new challenge, uh, just like when the Eastern District came to the fore in the late 90s, early 2000s. You had to study and understand the demographics in the region. You had to understand the court's rules. You had to understand how the process worked with respect to veneer. You had to understand uh, the different lived experiences that Marcus may talk about that that are brought to uh, the veneer pools. And you had to be flexible. And we are big believers that you can't judge a book by its cover, uh, that jury selection, uh, jury voir dire or voir dire, depending on where you are, is important. And you have to have a, a really concrete understanding of where you're litigating. Uh, and trying cases, and that doesn't change. Uh, the only difference about the Western District of Texas is that it's not the Eastern District of Texas. <laughs> it's not the District of Delaware. It's not, not the Northern District. Of, it's not the Northern District of California. It is the Western District of Texas, with all of the diversity and differences that you would expect. And so you have to be ready for that, and you have to embrace it. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned before, of course, uh, when you're talking about jury selection, um, that the population there it, it tends to be quite a bit more diverse in other ways. And of course, one of the big things that's come out this year as a result of COVID-19 um, has been uh, the importance of diversity and inclusion. I think law firms are have really been leading the way in this uh, and improving their diversity and inclusion policies. And uh, I just want to talk to you about that within your own law firm. Um, so what, how has your law firm been tackling diversity and inclusion over the past year? Well, our law firm has a unique history of diversity uh, from the very beginning. So it is something that we live uh, and have lived from the very beginning since the firm was founded in 1993. So for us, it's not about a yearly thing. It's a, it's a live thing. The, the The founding partners of the firm um, are diverse. Uh, they were started by um, two Jewish Americans and one Puerto Rican American were the original founding partners of the firm. So the very, at the very start, we brought with a different story and we have lived it uh, throughout the entire firm's history. And that's one of the great things about Mark Kasowitz and Hector Torres and Dan Benson is that we have always never cared about what you look like. We only cared if you were effective and you were a great colleague. And so what we've tried to do is build on that and showcase that. You know, a lot of times what you find in the practice of law is that people evangelize about diversity for purposes of marketing. 
but they don't necessarily have the results that back it up. And this is something that in the United States we're struggling with mightily and will continue to struggle with. What our firm has tended to do is to tend to live it. And by living it, having people like me uh, who had the Silicon Valley office, uh, who had the IP practice, uh, individuals like Darcy and Marcus, uh, having a diverse um, associate ranks where we don't really care what you look like. We care about if you're effective and you work hard. And one of the things that I've loved about the firm, and this is not my first firm, I've not been at Caswitz for the 21 years I practiced law. It is the last firm I've been here for a decade. But what I found here is I've been able to do things that I would have never been able to do at other firms because of the ethos that is present and lived here. Not necessarily, you know, waving a flag, but living it. And that is what separates our firm from everyone else is that we push it. We push it. We don't care about where you come from, what you look like, but are you effective and are you a good colleague? Are you trying to grow the firm? And that really stands out. And I think you can just look at the results across who are the leaders of the firm in terms of different offices, who are the people who are given great opportunities. I mean, the results speak for themselves. Absolutely. And if there are a few different things perhaps you could point to from the past year that uh, Kasowitz has uh, improved or introduced or that you're particularly proud of when it comes to diversity and inclusion, again, over the past year, um, what would those be? Well, one of the great things that, you know, that is done is that there's a, a women's initiatives committee that the firm has in which the women partners at the firm contacted each uh, woman associate or female associate at the firm to check in to see how they're doing during the pandemic. So that, I mean, that takes tremendous leadership. That shows the the collegial aspect of the firm and the fact that that committee was able to reach out and do that is tremendous. Uh, there are any number of also diversity committee initiatives that are done inside the firm to make sure that everyone feels welcome and cared about and loved and invested in at the firm. Uh, these are things that we don't do for marketing, but we do because we want to make sure that the place where it's a place where everyone feels comfortable and everybody feels that they can succeed. That's a big thing that uh, is a big hindrance to maintaining diversity and maintaining uh, what we think is a really balanced law firm. But those are two things that the firm has done, having an active participation, reaching out to make people feel wanted and included. And I know Darcy was a big part of the Women's Initiatives Committee that reached out and checked on the women associates at the firm in the past year during the pandemic. Wonderful, wonderful. And another thing, so a lot of what we've talked about so far has been kind of the moral and ethical kind of imperative behind diversity inclusion, which is, of course, extremely important. But the other argument for it, of course, is that there's a pretty strong business imperative for it as well. And so I'll, I'll put this question to Marcus. Um, do you think that diversity inclusion is an important factor in winning patent cases, much like the one that you won in Apple versus Fintiv? Yeah, absolutely it is. I mean, it, it is critical to winning patent cases because, you know, number one, it reflects the diversity of your team. Reflecting what you see in a jury pool is extremely important because it, it allows you to have insight into those people's lived experiences. It's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's critically important and definitely an advantage for your clients when you can bring that to bear. And also having people with different lived experiences gives you diversity of thought. Um, for example, on our team, we have you know people from California who grew up in California. We have people who grew up in the South. We have people who grew up in the Midwest. We have people who were born outside of the United States, you know, men, women, and, and all of that diversity of thought helps you to be successful in patent cases. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And then just generally in your 
I suppose if you were to make the same argument for uh, services more broadly at your law firm, again, do you think that it's just important for business broadly? Yeah, absolutely. It is important for business broadly. And, and it's, as John said, it's something that we really live at our firm. And I think you can see that in the success of our firm. It's, it's grown to be you know, a large firm. And since 1993, it's, you know, it's quite unprecedented growth. And then also you see it in the results that we achieve for our clients. So it's, it's, it's just important all around. And it's something that, that we focus on and that our firm has, has done a great job with. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much. And well, just to finish off, we have a few more minutes left on our podcast. I wanted to go around to each of you and, and just ask what, if anything, I suppose, uh, out of all the things that have happened over this past year, and it's been an interesting one, um, do you think is the most important thing that you learned from this past year in terms of your your practice, in terms of litigation or anything that was particularly important to you? Shall we start with uh, with John? I have learned, and I don't know if this is metaphysical, I have learned that you have that you you have everything you need, even in the most difficult of circumstances, that you have everything you need. If you had told me that I was going to try a jury trial in a pandemic in which I would not have access to my office, that I would have not a- have access to the staff, and that we would be able to do that and do it at a high level, I wouldn't have believed you. So it's made me much more appreciative that we have a tremendous team. You have everything you need to be successful. And once you focus on that, that allows you to get really good because then you can really focus on what matters. Excellent. Excellent. Great answer. And uh, Darcy, same question to you. I think that my response is very similar to John. I've learned to be much more appreciative. And there were lots of different times as we were getting ready for trial that I was just so thankful for our team. Our team had already always been so dependable, but it was taken to a whole new level when you when you don't have access to each other, when you're all going through whatever personal things that you're going through in the middle of a pandemic, and that we were all able to reach out to each other and to be there for each other. Um, our collaboration was really strong before the pandemic, and it was just unprecedented during it. Um, we were extremely resilient as a group, and um, and and just I felt that everyone really came together and was supporting each other um, in ways that none of us probably anticipated needing support from each other for before. Um, so that was I was extremely appreciative during this process. Absolutely, and and that's so important. And Marcus, last but not least, what has been your biggest takeaway? Um, I, th- I think that I would agree with John and Darcy about you know, being more appreciative, but I also learned the value of being flexible and, and more flexible. I think our team is, is is a team that is flexible and willing to work under different circumstances. But uh, with the pandemic, I, I really came to appreciate the value of that and, and how we were able to just work in different and new ways and utilize technology in ways that we had not done it before. Uh, one big thing I noticed, we had a pretrial conference via Zoom, <laughs> which was something that was completely new experience for me but um i think that that was a a big thing that i I took away from the pandemic excellent okay well that more or less brings us to our time well thank you all of you so much for uh, joining us today Uh, i think that was an incredibly insightful conversation so i think uh, our listeners will take away a lot from it so i will leave us there so this has been Patrick Wingrove from Managing IP. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.